Well, good morning and welcome to the journey through the Bible that we have been on for quite a while now. And I must say, I really do enjoy doing these with you. And uh, if you haven't had a chance, as I always say, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Uh, follow my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram page, AP Richards. Why? So that you can uh, share these videos. Uh, please like and comment on them as much as you can, and let's share them. Let's get the world to have an opportunity to see what the truth of the word is all about. Today, we're starting our journey through the book of Colossians. It's another one of Paul's epistles, uh, a letter. Uh, this is part of his prison epistles, and a uh, very interesting book, the book of Colossians, uh, written around 50 AD, very similar time to when Paul wrote the letters to the churches in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, and also the book of Galatians to the churches in Galatia. Uh, he wrote this, however, to a, a church in a very small place called Colossae, and it was an unusual place because Paul had actually never been there. The person who established the church in Colossae was a guy by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras, we think, got saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Now, uh, Colossae, and Ephesus are in modern-day Turkey. Colossae is about 100 miles from Ephesus. And we think that Epaphras got saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus and then went and started the church in Colossae. It was written in 50 AD, as I said. The earliest known copy that we have of uh, the entire book of Colossians is also found on Papyrus 46, which is where the book of um, uh, Galatians and a few other New Testament books is also found. Uh, very interesting. So the earliest copy that we have of the full book of Colossians is from 150 years after Paul wrote the original copy. Just like all of uh, Paul's letters, he didn't actually write them with his own hand, apart from sometimes he would write a portion at the end. Uh, and he would use a scribe. Uh, in this particular instance, we believe it to be Timothy. And uh, that's because Timothy is mentioned in the first verse, but then nowhere else uh, as far as playing any other role. So that's the role that we think that he played. We think that Paul uh, was in Rome when this was written. I'm just going to move over here because my camera is moving. Uh, Paul was in Rome when uh, uh, in, in prison in, and in chains. We know that he was in chains because he actually mentions that in the book of Colossians. And uh, interestingly enough, he'd never been to Colossae. Epaphras comes to him in Rome and says, hey, listen, started the church. Church went well, uh, but we've got some problems because what's happened is the people are now starting to uh, add to the gospel message that, that we've been preaching to them. And they've started adding pagan practices as well as some Jewish practices from Mosaic law. Now, the difference between the churches in Colossae and uh, Galatia and, and Ephesus are that there were really no Jews here. This was an entirely Gentile church that had given uh, in, uh, over to the gospel message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, very interesting, the book of Colossians. Paul wanted to teach them, after Epaphras has come and told him, hey, we've got some problems, he, he uses the book of Colossians to teach on the completeness of Christ and thus the completeness of anybody who is in Christ. And it has some unique perspectives. Uh, it's the only book in the Bible where we get to learn about what we call the cosmic Christ. 
It's the Christ of the cosmos, Jesus and his relationship to the creation of the universe. Uh, that he is the head of all creation and that he is also the very face of God. Like most books that Paul wrote, the first half of the book of Colossians is doctrinal and the second half is about practical application. So we're going to start with Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul was qualified to write this letter because... Uh, even though he had never met them personally, he was an apostle. That's who he was. Uh, and the literal meaning of the word apostolos means one who is sent. But at its deepest level, it, it talks about somebody who's basically an authorized spokesperson for God, somebody who's commissioned, somebody who's empowered to act as a representative of God. That's who Paul was. Timothy was, as we know, an honored companion of Paul, but he was not an apostle. And uh, that's why we believe him to be the scribe, the writer. Uh, so Paul's, Paul's the one, it's Paul's letter. Paul, Timothy's actually writing the words out. Verse 2. To, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting that he breaks up saints and faithful brethren into two groups. Uh, when, he, when he addressed the saints, he didn't separate some Christians from other Christians in the Colossian church. That's not what he was doing. Every true Christian is a saint. But Paul makes a distinction with the, fa the phrase faithful brethren. So he may be referring to those who, ha who, those who are uh, saints, but they haven't embraced the false teaching that Paul was so concerned about and why he actually wrote the letter in the first place. Uh, interestingly enough, the city of Colossae was probably the smallest and least important city that Paul ever wrote to. So if you want to talk about a man who listened to the Holy Spirit and did not base what he did on reason, just writing this book makes you understand that Paul knew how to listen to the Holy Spirit and do something that made no sense to anybody else. Because this was a very small church, very small region, and he had nothing to do with them personally. Uh, but he obviously thought through his apostolic anointing that the church was important enough for apostolic attention. Um, now, Paul wrote there uh, because of, to the church in Colossae because there was what has been called, it's a doctrinal problem that has been described by theologians as the Colossian heresy. And the, the first century religious environment was very much like our own. It was a time of religious mixing where people would take a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that one, and throw it, throw it all in together and think they'd improved on pardon me, what had started. Now, we don't really know what the problem was. It's never actually explained to us anywhere. We do know that whatever the problem was, Paul dwelt on one very simple solution. If you understand Jesus the Christ better and know the real Jesus, then that will help you stay away from any other counterfeit, no matter how it is packaged and explained to you. Now, uh, Epaphras was native to the church, uh, the city of uh, Colossae. Uh, he'd heard, as he said, he'd heard the gospel for himself when Paul was in Ephesus. And interestingly enough, the city of Colossae was destroyed about 10 years after this letter by an earthquake. So the city didn't exist. After 10 years, it was destroyed completely. Didn't exist. Uh, Eusebius, Tacitus, uh, they were Roman historians, wrote about the destruction of Colossae, which is very interesting. And this letter is full of love and concern. It's written to a church that Paul didn't, never planted, he never visited. 
And it shows the power of Christian love that Paul had. He didn't need to see or directly meet these Christians in order to love them and be concerned for them. Verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. When Paul did pray for the Colossians, he did it full of gratitude. David Guzik says this, perhaps those who pray the most end up having the most reasons to thank God. Positing a question, which I like. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Genuine faith in Jesus will always have a true love for God's people as, uh, as, as something that accompanies your Christian journey. Verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. In heaven, uh, he, was, he was thankful when he considered the destiny of the Colossian Christians. And interestingly enough, have you noticed how Paul's already used faith, hope, and love in the first five verses? Uh, they weren't just theological ideas, faith, hope, and love. They dominated his thinking in everything, and they were always wrapped up in grace, which was found in Jesus. Very consistent message from the Apostle Paul, always. He was thankful that their eternal destiny was affected by the truth of the gospel that was, had been brought to them by Epaphras. Verse 6 which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. Uh, which is interesting because it was actually producing, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Minister meaning a servant here in that context. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So first thing Paul prays here is that they would have a knowledge of God's will, which was informed by a true spiritual understanding. So Paul's making the point here that to know God and know what he requires of us is our first responsibility. Your first responsibility to a Christian, as a Christian isn't just to know God. It's to know God and then know what he wants you to do and what responsibilities you have as a Christ follower. Spurgeon said this, If you read this epistle through, you'll observe that Paul frequently alludes to knowledge and wisdom. He knew that spiritual ignorance is the constant source of error, instability and sorrow. And therefore, he desired that they might be soundly taught in the things of God. Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prayed that they would live according to the same knowledge that they'd received and live out a, a walk worthy of the Lord. Now, this is, this is a familiar pattern and theme repeated over and over in the New Testament that our walk is based on our knowledge of God, our understanding of his will, and that's how you produce fruit. What is being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God? What is that? That's how we can be fully pleasing to God and therefore have a walk that's worthy of God, which is very much an a, a echo of what Jesus preached in John chapter 15, verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. 
As we walk worthy of the Lord, God's strength is there to help us meet every single challenge in life that we face. It's also there to help us endure and overcome problems with the circumstances that we face. That's why we need patience. And then also to help us with problems with people, which is why we need long suffering with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Qualified us. In, in the divine administration, the, the Father is mentioned in connection with the broad sweep of his plan of redemption. He's the person of the Trinity who actually initiates the plan of the ages. Uh, now, to be partakers in, of the inheritance in the saints. It's the Father who qualifies us. It's not our own works. We, we gain this, as Paul says here, as an inheritance. Instead of earning it as a wage. Difference between an inheritance and a wage. Okay. Uh, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Christians have been delivered from Satan's domain. You have to understand that. And the word has the idea here, delivered here, of rescue by a sovereign power. Now, another place where the same phrase is, is used in the, in the Bible for the power of darkness is in Luke twenty two fifty three, where Jesus spoke of the darkness surrounding his arrest and, and his passion in the same terms. Uh, David Guzik, great quote. The power of darkness may be seen in its effects. And for those who have been delivered from the power of darkness, these effects should be less and less evident in the real life. The power of darkness lulls us to sleep. The power of darkness is skilled at concealment. The power of darkness afflicts and depresses us. The power of darkness can fascinate us. And the power of darkness emboldens some people. And that's what should be seen less and less in us. Okay, then he goes on and he says, and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. According to William Barclay, the word we translate conveyed uh, had a very special significance in the ancient world. When, when one empire conquered another, the custom was to take the population of the defeated empire and transfer it completely to the conqueror's land. Uh, and it's in the same sense that Paul says we have been conveyed into God's kingdom. Everything we have and everything we are now belongs to God. And the son of his love, wrapped up in the end of that verse there, is a way of saying God's dear son. So that that's, we've been conveyed to a place that we don't deserve to be because of Jesus. Consistent message, right? Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Very important. How do we have redemption? Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. The price for our release was paid for by the blood of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why pleading the blood of Jesus in the right sense, not the weird mystical way, uh, has a very great significance in spiritual warfare because it basically is like showing somebody the receipt of, the, of our law, lawful purchase as redeemed people. It's like, no, look, I've been paid for. Look, it, it, how? Through the blood. And the word translated forgiveness, when uh, talking about forgiveness of sins in this verse, is the ancient Greek word aphesis, which most literally means uh, ascending away. Our sin and guilt has been sent away. 
because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, shedding his blood. Okay, then we get into verses 15, uh, 16, 17, uh, and 18. These are one of the greatest poems ever written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, I actually have a recording of my grandfather, my pa, uh, saying these verses, preaching them in a message from 1965. In fact, what I'll try and do is put a link in that, or if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll be able to see it, Bill Hawkins, Penny Gross in 1965. And he preached on these verses. And so they do hold a very special significance for me personally. But this poem is amazing about who it reveals God to be and who it reveals Jesus to be. So let me read it to you uh, and I'll read it uh, and, and go through it. So actually, you know what I'll do is I'll read it uh, verse by verse and go through it verse by verse. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word translated image is the, is the Greek word icon, E-I-K-O-N. And it means two things, a likeness, uh, as in an image on a coin, uh, or a reflection in the mirror when you're looking at yourself in the mirror. And secondly, it means a manifestation with the sense that God is fully revealed in that likeness. See, if Paul, Robertson says this, if Paul meant that Jesus was merely similar to the Father, he would have used the ancient Greek word homoimia, I apologize, which speaks merely of looking similar. But he didn't say that he looked similar, he said he was the likeness. Now, firstborn, this is a very interesting word used here because it's the ancient Greek word protokokos, prototokos. And it can describe either priority in time or supremacy in rank. So as Paul used it here, he probably had both ideas in mind, with, with Jesus being before all created things, and Jesus also being of a supremely different order than all created things. Now, in no way does the title firstborn indicate that Jesus is less than God. In fact, ancient rabbis called uh, God himself, Yahweh, firstborn of the world. Bishop Lightfoot, uh, who was a noted Greek scholar, uh, this said this on the use of the words icon and prototokos. As the person of Christ was the divine response alike to the philosophical questionings of the Alexandrian Jew, and to the patriotic hopes of the Palestinian, these two currents of thought meet in the term prototokos as applied to our Lord, who is both the true Logos, word, and the true Messiah. Okay, verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created through him and for him. All things. There is no doubt that Jesus is the author of all creation. He himself is not a created being. When we behold the wonder and the glory of the world that Jesus created, then we will, we will want to worship and honor him even more. Think about some interesting facts here that I compiled. Uh, comets in the sky, in the space. They have a trail, a vapor trail, up to 10,000 miles long. If you could capture all that vapor and put it in a little bottle, the amount of vapor would actually, uh, that would be in the bottle would be about uh, one inch, one cubic inch at the bottom. 
10,000 mile vapour. The Earth travels around the Sun eight times the speed of a bullet that has been fired from a gun. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire Earth. A single human chromosome, just one, contains 20 billion bits of information. In written, if written in ordinary books, in ordinary language, just one human chromosome would take about 4,000 volumes of words. Uh, A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar, said this, the permanence of the universe rests then on Christ far more than it does on gravity. I love that. Now, when he says, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, uh, as, as is going to be demonstrated in the rest of this letter, the Colossian heresy seemed taken with some kind of elaborate mysticism or angelology. What does that mean? It basically placed angels as mediators between God and man. And Paul emphasized that whatever ranks spiritual beings you know, may have, Jesus created them and they ultimately answer to him, which is why he is worthy of all glory, not just some. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in, in him all things consist. Paul rightly understood and insisted that Jesus is before all things, and in himself is the beginning. Uh, William Clark, as all creation necessarily exists in time and had a commencement, and there was an infinite duration in which it did not exist, whatever was before or prior to that must be no part of creation. And the being who existed prior to creation and before all things all existence of every kind, must be the unoriginated and eternal God. But Paul says, Jesus Christ was before all things. Therefore, the apostle conceived Jesus Christ to be truly and essentially God. In him, all things consist. The idea that Jesus is both the unifying principle and the personal sustainer of all creation is what is summed up in these few words. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Um, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll read on to verse 18. And he is the head of the body. Sorry. Um, Sorry, verse 18, I, my apologies for getting a little lost there. I got, got a little caught up in the, the emotion of what I'm thinking about. Verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Okay. Uh, this talks about Jesus' relationship to the church. Here, uh, the word head probably refers to Jesus' role as the source of the church, as well as the head. Uh, the same way that we would re refer to the, the source of a river as being the head of the river. And that, that's the same Greek word meaning. That in all things he may have preeminence is a very uh, eloquent summary of the verses found in the verses uh, 15 to 17. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Very interesting. 
fullness. Uh, it, that translates the word, the Greek word pleroma, and was really just another way to say that Jesus is God. Now, according to Vincent, uh, pleroma was used by the Gnostic teachers in a technical sense to express the sum total of divine powers and attributes. Christ may have been ranked with these inferior images of the divine by the Colossian teachers. Hence the significance of the assertion that the totality of the divine dwells in him. Okay, just taking my jacket off because I'm getting all warmed up here. I'm enjoying this so much. The ancient Greek word for dwell is here used in the sense of a permanent dwelling. There's an entirely different word used for the sense of a temporary dwelling place. Paul wanted to emphasize the idea that Jesus is not temporarily God, but permanently God. He was permanently God in the creation of the world, when he came, when he died, and who he is forever. Permanently God. Um, verse 18. Now, I want to talk to you about the term, I want to go back to the firstborn of the dead. Because that can be a phrase that, that you can just, that can mess with your head. Okay. As the firstborn of the dead, Jesus is both first in time and first in preeminence. In other words, he was before all things, okay? But he's also the first to be raised from the dead. He uh, now that understand difference between Lazarus and Jesus. Uh, people talk about Lazarus being resurrected. No, Lazarus was brought from the brought back from the dead, but he died again later on. Okay? Uh, Jesus was resurrected, still alive today. Jesus was the founder, the initiator of the new era that God was bringing through Jesus' victory over sin and death. So Jesus' resurrection from death opens the way for all of us who trust in him to follow in a resurrection like his when he returns. So what does that mean? It's important because it shows that our ultimate hope is not just for our souls to go to heaven. It's for our physical bodies to be raised to new life like Jesus was because he was the firstborn of the resurrection. There's just so much in this. Um, okay, let's finish, go back to finishing verse 19. Um, remember that it once pleased God, uh, which is talked about in Isaiah 53, to bruise Jesus because uh, he had to be made an offering for sin. Now it pleases the Father that in him all the fullness of God should dwell. Isn't that interesting about what pleased the Father? Um, and the phrase in him all the fullness should dwell, uh, should all the fullness dwell, basically brings to a climax the previous statements here. The image of God, the firstborn of all creation, creator, the eternally preexistent, the head of the church, victory over death, first in all things. And Vincent says this, On this summit we pause, looking like John, from Christ in his fullness of deity to the exhibition of that divine fullness in redemption, which will be consummated in heaven for him and for us. Um, the fullness has been put into Jesus Christ. The fullness has not been put into the church, not into a priesthood, not into a building, not into a sacrament, not into the saints, not into a method, not into any program. It's in Jesus Christ himself. It was put into him so that it could be distributed to those who wanted more of God. And the only way that they could do it was to find it in Jesus Christ. Verse 20. 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, Jesus' atoning work is, is full. It's complete. But it doesn't mean, this verse does not, endorse universalism. What does universalism mean? It means everybody's automatically saved because of what Jesus did. Uh, We don't make our own peace with God. Jesus made peace for us through his work on the cross. And the blood of the cross speaks to us of the real physical death of Jesus Christ in our place on our behalf before God, which allows us to accept his free gift offered to us, which we can accept or reject. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Uh, The ancient Greek word alienated, which is uh, apelotriaminos, is literally transferred to another owner. That's what it means. This transfer of ownership from uh, God and then to Satan and to self affected us both in our mind and our behavior. And we belong to the race of Adam. There is only one human race, by the way, uh, and it's the race of Adam. We are born alienated, and every human is a part of that race. And we are born alienated from God. Then as individuals, we each choose to accept and embrace that alienation with our wicked works. Which means that in Christ, when we accept him, we are no longer alienated. So the difference between a believer and a non-believer is, isn't just forgiveness. There's a complete change of status of who you are. Alienated, not alienated. Away, close. God's answer to the problem of alienation is what? Reconciliation. What is reconciliation initiated by? Jesus' work on the cross. Uh, in the work of reconciliation, God didn't come and meet us. Reconciliation, we always think of like, well, I come here, you come there, and now we've reconciled. That's not what it was. God didn't meet us halfway. God actually came all the way to us and then invites us to accept the free gift. That's the difference. Verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's the result of God's work of reconciliation. Uh, Taken together, all these words show that in Jesus we are pure and we can't even be justly accused of impurity. We can't happen. The idea of presenting us holy and blameless before God uh, may recall the terminology used when priests inspected potential animal sacrifices. So we're presented to God as a living sacrifice. Now, it's very important to note that a desire to be saved means a desire to be made holy, not just to receive salvation. And it also means a desire to be blameless and above reproach, not merely to escape the fire of hell on our own terms. That's not what it means. Verse 23. Now, this this is a very contentious verse in the Bible. Lots lots of different thoughts on what this verse means. So I'm going to tell you what I think. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's main focus is continuing in the truth of the gospel. Continue in the faith. 
not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Okay? Uh, it's important for Christians to continue in godly conduct, not just start. But we're not saved by our godly conduct, so it's even more important for Christians to continue in the truth of the gospel because we're saved by grace through faith. Now, what does it mean that the gospel has been preached to every creature? I think it means two things. Firstly, I want to remind you or, or highlight for you that Paul here is quoting the exact same words that Jesus used in the original language from Mark chapter 16, verse 15, uh, talking uh, about the gospel being revealed in creation. Because why? Because Jesus was the creator and the gospel is revealed, therefore, in what he did, which was creation, what he created. So the gospel, Jesus Christ, is revealed in creation because Jesus created it. Now, not only that, it also means that the gospel is being continuing to be preached to every creature. Why? Because Jesus commanded us in the Great Commission, go in all the world and preach the gospel. So it has been preached in, 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 uh, through creation, looking at what has been created, and it's being preached by those who are following the Great Commission. I think this is part of God's mystery to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to receive the gospel. I just think some people receive it in different ways. I think God has the ability to allow people to receive the gospel through different methods. And, and the two methods revealed here in this, in this verse right here are through people observing Jesus in creation because he created everything. And also through the preaching of the gospel message through human means. There you go. That's my thoughts. Verse 24. Uh, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul's writing this from a Roman jail. He could see that his sufferings have, have actually worked some good for others. So he could say that his sufferings were for the Colossians and for other Christians. The afflictions, the word afflictions here, Greek word, is never used talking about the afflictions of Jesus on the cross. Uh, now, what does that mean? That means that most commentators see this as a reference to the affliction that Jesus endured on uh, during his ministry, not the afflictions of what he received on the cross. These afflictions, what Jesus endured in his ministry, they're not yet complete. And, and in this sense, Jesus still suffers as he ministers through you and me. Paul didn't suffer for himself in the way that an ascetic person would. Now, what is an ascetic? An ascetic is somebody who practices severe self-discipline and, and abstention. Um, instead, he suffered for the sake of the body of Christ. Uh, ascetics focus on their own personal holiness, their own spiritual growth, their own perfection. Paul followed in the footsteps of Jesus, and he had a, his, his approach was thinking about other people, not himself. Paul found holiness, spiritual growth, and maturity when he pursued these things for others, not for himself. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul was a minister, a servant of the body of Christ, the church. He didn't take this position on his own initiative, but according to the stewardship from God. God put Paul in that position. Paul did not put himself in that position. Verse 26, 
the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. This is very interesting. In a biblical sense, the word mystery does not mean a riddle. It's a truth that can only be known by revelation. You can't know it from intuition. Uh, now, in the period that you and I live, it can be known because it has been revealed to his saints. But it was hidden from the ages and generations, which reminds us that there are aspects of uh, God's plan that were not clearly revealed in the Old Testament. The specific mystery that Paul refers to here deals with the many aspects of the work of Jesus in his people, uh, but especially the plan of the church. Plan of the church, not revealed so much in the Old Testament. Talked about, not revealed. To make one body. What was the plan of the church? To make one body out of Jews that accepted Christ and Gentiles that accepted Christ. And it was to be taken from the quote-unquote trunk of the tree of Israel. But it wasn't Israel. And uh, if you want to go through my studies uh, in the book of Galatians, I explain all that and also through the book of Romans. Verse 27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Never meant to happen, you see, from a Jewish perspective. The wonder and the glory of, of having the indwelling Jesus wasn't clearly revealed in the Old Testament when it comes to the Gentiles. Therefore, this aspect of the work of Jesus in people was a mystery that wasn't revealed until the time of Jesus and the apostles. That means that God is revealed to you and me in Jesus. Uh, now, I'm going to just teach you a little bit of Latin here. Classic theologians use the Latin term Deus absconditus to refer to the hidden God, the God that can be clearly seen or known. The Latin theological term Deus revelatus refers to the revealed God. In Jesus, the Deus absconditus has become the Deus revelatus. You can replay that a few times and get it, get it in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the Christian's hope of glory. It's, it, it's not our own hard work or devotion to God or the power of our own spirituality. Instead, it is the abiding presence of Jesus, Christ in you and Christ in me. Boom. Love this. Verse 28, getting to the end here. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This was the focus of Paul's preaching. He didn't preach about himself or his opinions uh, or lots of entertaining stories. Paul preached Jesus. He wanted the whole gospel for the whole world and he wasn't going to hold back in any area. It was for every man and it was presented in all wisdom. And the word of warning, the work of warning, uh, or help, helping to impart understanding, as, the, as is a better definition of the word, was a passion for Paul in ministry. You can read about that in Acts 20. It was the job of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's, it's uh, of the, the church body in general has a responsibility, Colossians 3. We're going to read that later on. Providing that they are able to admonish and encourage others, Romans 15 that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The goal of Paul's ministry was to bring people to maturity in Christ and not dependence upon him, Paul. 
He didn't want them just to be saved. He wanted them to be mature into their calling. And Vaughan says this, uh, Professor Vaughan, this work for, was for every man. In contrast, the false teachers at Colossae believed the way of salvation to be so involved that it could be understood only by a select few who made up some sort of spiritual aristocracy. And Paul was saying, not true, not true. Church in Colossae, not true. Verse 29, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul's work was empowered by God's mighty strength. But God's strength in Paul's life didn't mean that he did nothing. He worked very hard according to his word working. Now, uh, Professor Wright says this, the word struggling, striving, whose root can mean to compete in the games, carries, as of then in Paul, the idea of an athletic contest. Paul does not go about his work half-heartedly, hoping vaguely that grace will fill in the gaps which he is too lazy to work at himself. No, he knows he's competing. What an amazing start to the book of Colossians. Uh, this is an incredible book, and I, 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 I'm going to tell you what I observe. This is something that I continually observe through my Christian journey, and that is there are mysteries in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that I, may, I need to make sure I don't get caught up in, in trying to, you know, I, I need to rightly divide the word of truth, verse Timothy, but I can't get caught up in the mysteries. Um, things like, you know, every creature having the gospel preached to them. Uh, does that include animals? Does that include, you know, all that, that kind of thing? You know, um, I, I need to not get caught up in those things. I just need to be obedient to what the Word of God says, which is that Jesus, here's Jesus playing, playing the role, the firstborn over all creation. And then he tells me in the Great Commission that it's my job to go and preach the gospel of Jesus. So I can't get caught up in the mystery of, well, if the gospel's already preached to every creature, then why do I need to go and do it? I just need to understand that God's got a divine purpose and I fit into it by playing my part. I don't fit into it by trying to put myself into the mind of God. I'm never going to understand the mind of God. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His thoughts are not my, my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. I just need to be obedient. I'm a recipient of his grace. I'm a recipient of his mercy. I'm a recipient of his saving work. And so therefore, uh, I am positively obliged to just do what he asks me to do. And that's what I think you should do too. How's that? Heavenly Father, help us uh, to apply the simplicity of your word. Thank you for the mysteries. We thank you for them. And we thank you for the revelation of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.